we also as well just welcome everyone who's with us online this morning. So glad to have everyone with us today. And uh, Pastor Steve, I know that you're with us online today. I just want to also thank you for the opportunity to spend the next few weeks uh, kicking off this brand new series, talking to our church about eternity. Someone look at your neighbor and say, eternity, eternity. I want to start out this morning uh, comparing two different leaders from the pages of world history. The first person that I want to introduce you to is a leader who was called Philip of Macedon. Philip of Macedon, some called him Philip II. Here's an old statue, a bust of his face here for you to be able to look at this morning. Philip was the leader who actually united much of uh, Greece and passed on his kingdom to his son Alexander the Great who conquered the then known world. Philip was an accomplished leader and ruler in his own right But the unique thing about Philip was he had a servant that he commissioned to fulfill one single purpose daily in his kingdom. The one role of this servant was every single day to look Philip in the eyes and say to him, Philip, the day will come where you shall die. And then the servant would leave his presence. It's interesting to note that the servant was specifically tasked to not call him ruler, to not call him king, but to simply call him Philip and to remind him of his mortality. Philip, the day will come when you shall die. Compare the approach Philip had towards the reality of death with the approach that Louis XIV, king of France, had. Here's a painting of him before the days of Twitter, before the days of Instagram, before he could go ahead and just put out a post on Facebook. The way that he decided to present himself to his people was he actually had, he commissioned this painting to present him in the form of Jupiter, the God of all gods in the Roman pantheon of gods. He wanted to present himself as deity, as the source of life itself. And the thing most notable about his kingdom is that he decreed that death would never be spoken of in his presence. And if you were to mention death in the presence of this man, you would be banished from his presence for the rest of your life. He did everything that he could to insulate his life and his environment and his surroundings from the reality and the uncomfortableness of this notion of death and what's on the other side. Two different responses. One who embraced it daily and allowed it to propel his efforts in the day ahead. And the other who hid from it and propped up his own story of his greatness. I wonder which approach better mirrors your approach to death. How often do you think about eternity? How often do you think about the reality that the day will come where you will breathe a breath and then be no more? When is the last time that you paused and reflected on the thought that there is more to this life than what we see or know in this realm? See, the title of our new series, it may be the most encouraging series title in the history of Wave Church, is simply this, Remember You Die. (laughs) Remember You Die. Is anyone feeling encouraged yet in Jesus' name? This is the perfect time for me to remind everyone of what Pastor Steve and Pastor Sharon have built this church on. The best is yet 
to come in Jesus' name, right? Okay. Title of the series is Remember You Die, and, and what are we talking about? We're talking about eternity and what on earth it has to do with our lives today. It was in 1789 that Benjamin Franklin said, in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. In this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Who's already got your tax return completed and you've already had that return, God willing, posted to your bank account in Jesus' name? It's always the will of God right there. You know, the reality is worldwide, three people pass away every second. I know, it's crazy news, I know. Every second, three people pass away. Maybe look at your neighbor, make sure they're not one of them right now in Jesus' name. If they're sleeping, nudge them in the side. That averages out to 180 people every single minute. 10,800 people every hour. 259,200 people every day who are stepping into either an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. Three people every second. Every snapping of my finger, someone stepping into the eternal. Every snapping of my finger, someone leaving this life and stepping into what scripture paints as the true life. The interesting thing about being Americans in this day and age is that American society, we work so hard to actually hide death from our communal conscience. We, we work so hard to hide death from being a part of our existence. I actually believe that is one of the reasons why the COVID pandemic was such a traumatic time for so many people around the world is because it was unavoidable to reckon with your mortality and the possibility of this life ending. And everywhere you went and everything you did and every time you turned on the TV and every single time you checked your social media, there was a reminder that this life is a vapor and it is infinitely more precarious than we are led to believe by society today. I mean, I remember what it was like when Cruz found out where chicken nuggets come from. Like, he just thought, you know, like, there's potato plants, there, there's green beans that shoot up out of the ground, right? That, 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 you know, peppers just go ahead and grow if you happen to have a green thumb. But, but I, I guess he thought there was a chicken nugget plant or something like that. But there was one day where we were driving up. I was on my way to preach in New Jersey and bringing the whole family with me. And we were going by way of the eastern shore and we passed the Purdue chicken plant. And there was this entire truck filled with chickens. And Cruz thought it was the most hilarious thing in the whole world. He was just laughing at the chickens and the way they were packed in there. And then he saw them turning into the plant. And he goes, Dad, what do they do there? And I didn't even think about it. I just said, they make your nuggets. <laughs> and I, I'll never forget seeing him in the rearview mirror. He just got real quiet. <laughs> and it was about as, as, as existential a look on a three-year-old boy's face as you could get. He was just looking out there, and it's like he could just see the chickens stepping into the other side. <laughs> he did not say another word until we crossed the Maryland border. But I think that's the way it is for so many of us. We just live 
without any concern or with a, a, a total commitment to hiding from this question of what's on the other side. What I appreciate about the word of God is the word of God doesn't hide from the realities of life, death, and eternity. Jesus, Paul, and so many others in scripture, they had so much to say about this idea of eternity. But if we really want to comprehend what they're saying, we have to pause and make sure that we're looking at things through this same view that they looked at things. The funny thing to me about eternity is that usually when you read books about eternity or, or you hear people preach about eternity, they always fast forward to the day that you die. And for us to talk about the day you die today would be like you and I going to the theater to see a movie and willfully choosing that we're only going to watch the last five minutes of it. To make sense of the last five minutes, we actually need to go back to the beginning. And so as we begin our study as a church on eternity today, I don't want to actually take you to that moment of heaven and hell. That's what next week is all about. Today, I actually want to encourage us to go back to the beginning. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go with me to Genesis chapter 1. And maybe as we're turning here, maybe you've been a part of our church's journey over the past few years, and you, you remember some of the different series that uh, Pastor Steve and Pastor Sharon have asked me to share uh, with our community about. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, Joe, Genesis again? Like, like every time you preach, you go back to Genesis. Frank, can I tell you something? When you are reading your Bible, if it does not frequently and repeatedly take you back to the book of Genesis, you're not really reading your Bible. Jesus and Paul and so many others, their views on life, on death, in eternity, it was saturated with what happens in this original or this first book of the Bible. And so that's why we're turning back to this place here today. If you, if you um, have gotten to the maps in your Bible, you've gone too far, go back to the left. All right? Um, but if you're following along with an app, you got there quicker than any of us. I'm going to read Genesis 1, verses 26 to the first part of 28. It says this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Someone say, our image. And according to our likeness. Someone say, our likeness. I want to remind all of us today that we are made in the image and likeness of God. We are not made in the image and likeness of popular public opinion. We are not made in the image and likeness of our emotions. You are not made in the image and likeness of the labels that society has tried to put on you. You are not made in the image and the likeness of anything other than God, the creator of heaven and earth. That has nothing to do with my message. It's just really good news. He said, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth. Someone say all of it. Over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. The Bible is repeating itself to make sure we get the point here. You are not sludge. You are not a monkey that got lucky. You are made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It only says male and female. I'm moving on. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the original account of creation right here. We kept reading on, we get to verse 31, and the Bible reiterates that the entire arrangement was very good. Rabbi Rambam, he, he's, he's a highly esteemed rabbi from the medieval uh, or the Middle Ages. He actually says this about the meaning of very good. It means everything was fit for its purpose and able to act accordingly. Everything was fit for its purpose and able to act accordingly. Can I ask you a question this morning? Is there anything as satisfying as when things go as planned? Like, how many parents do we have in the room today? All right, good deal. So that feeling when you get the kids all up in the morning for church on a Sunday and you say, we are leaving at 9.15. And you get in the car. And they're still fighting, but they're in the car. And you look at that clock on the car dashboard, and it doesn't say 9.15. It says 9.14. When you see that you actually not only met the targeted time, but you exceeded the targeted time, you just feel like mom or dad of the century right there. It's like, hang my parenting uniform in the rafters. I'm done. I have, achieved, I have prestiged. I have reached greatness. Like when a plan goes the way you want it to go, there is nothing like that feeling, right? When you propose to that woman to marry her, and ladies, run away from the guy that's waiting for you to propose to him in Jesus' name, all right? Masculinity is still a thing in the kingdom of God, amen. And when that whole plan goes the way that you intended for it to go, it is one of the most satisfying things in life when plans go as they were designed to go. Well, that's what happened when God created the heavens and the earth. There were no mistakes. Nothing was lacking. Nothing was missing. Nothing was out of place. What's interesting is there's no mention of death. That God created this universe. He created humanity. He created life. He created all the earth. And yet humanity did not have death in its midst. You see... What's important for us to catch in this account here is that humanity was created for an eternity with God. Humanity was created for an eternity with God. That's why Ecclesiastes 3.11 actually says that he has placed eternity in the hearts of man. You know, we look at the globe today and we see so much disagreement all around us. You see civilizations that can't quite figure out how to play well with the other one, right? But what's amazing to me is that with all the disagreements in civilization, with all the ways that we're different and not the same, that throughout all of time, every single civilization, whether they interacted with others or not, they have all come to this place of wrestling with, what happens after I die? 
What, what comes after this? You read their philosophers and their writers and their leaders, and there's this aching in their heart that says, there's got to be more to life than this. I would like to submit to you for consideration today that that sense of what is the meaning of life, that that question that all of humanity has shared is, what happens after my days on this earth are finished? It is man grappling with the reality that God has placed eternity in his heart, and yet he's trying to answer the question without allowing the author of eternity to enter into the conversation. Humanity was created for an eternity with God. But the question is, what happened? Because we live in a world that is, that is stained with sin. We live in a world that is stained with death. Just a month ago, my father passed away. Right now, my wife is fighting a very real battle with sickness in her body. And so I look at what God said this world was meant to be, and I look at the life that I'm living in, and the two don't match up. Do you feel like your life matches up with this book? I've not met anyone who says that's the life that I'm living now. So what happened? Well, Genesis 2, 16 to 17, the story keeps going, and God is once again speaking. This time he's speaking to the mankind that he created, and he said, from any tree of the garden, someone say any tree, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. Now, if you're in the habit of marking up your Bibles, I want to encourage you, that word freely, underline it, highlight it, circle it, mark it, make a note of it. God says, of any tree in the garden, you may eat freely. But then he goes on and he says what? He says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. That word die, highlight it, circle it, mark it. And the thing that I want to point out to us from looking at this passage right here is that freedom and death are introduced in the Bible's explanation of humanity at the same time. Freedom and death are given to us the first time freedom or death are mentioned in the Bible. It's in the same verse, or this two verses side by side, and they are mentioned in the context of obedience. You will either know freedom or you will know death based off of your response to obedience. You will either know freedom or you will know death based on your response to obedience. There we go, one person that resonated with right there. I'm preaching to you the rest of the service in Jesus' name, there we go. You see, true freedom respects boundaries. But the postmodern mind says, no, I reject authority. I reject the idea that truth is absolute. And postmodernism is immersed in the midst of American society. And essentially what it has done is this. is postmodernism is the idea that I seek to free the fish from the water. The only problem with that thinking is that the fish out of water is not free. The fish out of water is dead. And so the Genesis account reveals to us, yes, you were made for eternity. And yet that eternity is actually rooted 
in obedient relationship with God. You see, God's design for eternity wasn't that you can just live any old way that you want, that you can be your own God, that you can just do whatever you want to do and, and just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That is not God's view on life. No, God designed for eternity is anchored in obedient relationship with him. But as we continue through the Genesis account, we realize by chapter three, Adam and Eve got tired of doing things God's way. Maybe they heard that, that classic song, right? You know, and now I stand or whatever before the final curtain. I did it my way. That is why I don't get to sing in worship, by the way, right there. That's exactly why I don't get to do that. I didn't even know all the words to that song as many of you in the room just realized. But I had enough of it for you to get the point. Eventually, Adam and Eve said, no, I want to do it my way. And they paid dearly for it. Death entered into the human story. Sin marred our relationship with God. There's a separation between God and humanity. And humanity is in this position where they cannot save themselves. We see them acting the way that Louis XIV reacted. He hid from death. He didn't allow it to be mentioned in his presence. And we find Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, but instead of running to God, they're hiding from God. And in this moment, God has this incredible conversation, and he speaks with the one who actually deceived Adam and Eve, and he has a conversation with them, and it reminds me of Liam Neeson in that movie, Taken. Has anyone here ever seen the movie, Taken? It's a fantastic scene where Liam Neeson, he's this retired CIA operative, and, and there are some, some criminals who made the horrible decision in life of actually kidnapping his daughter. And he's on the phone, and he's speaking with them, and in the middle of speaking with those those, uh, those people who just kidnapped his daughter, he has this monologue that could be considered one of the most iconic scenes in modern cinema. And it's at that moment where Liam Neeson's on the phone and he says, I have a very particular set of skills. Skills that I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. That is awesome. God essentially says the exact same thing to the devil in the Garden of Eden. It says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, that the Lord God said to the serpent, the one who deceived his creation, the one who took the man and the woman out of his presence by way of causing them to worship something other than the one true God. The Lord God says to that serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. He goes on to say in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. What is God getting at here? He's saying, you think that she actually chose you over me? No, you watch what's gonna happen, serpent. I'm going to make such a disagreement between you and her. You think she's in your back pocket, but this is not over yet. There will be enmity between you and that woman, between your seed and her seed. In the seed that she brings to bear, he will crush your head 
And all you're going to be able to do is bruise his heel in the process. God serves notice to the devil that it will not end like this. I have a plan. I am setting it in motion. And you can do nothing to stop it. For in this moment, serpent, you are cursed. And it's from that moment that we begin to see God takes all available resources of creation and he funnels them into the saving of humanity. See, we have to understand something very important in this moment is that sin does not prevent you from being an eternal being. Sin perverts the way you experience the eternal nature of your being. The gospel does not tell you you can have the choice to either be eternal or not. The gospel actually presents to you the reality that you were made to live an eternal existence in a very specific context. And yet because of sin, that context has been perverted. The enemy cannot create anything new. All he does is he takes God's creation and he perverts it. He takes sex and he perverts it. He takes the family unit and he perverts it. He takes government and he perverts it. He takes identity and he perverts it. And can I tell you something? He has even tried to take eternity and to pervert it. Eternity was intended for you to spend all of eternity in the presence of God. The Westminster Catechism says this, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You were created to enjoy God and to glorify him for all of eternity. And sin cannot break off of you the image of God. Sin cannot break off of you the fact that you are an eternal being. But sin can take your eternal nature and pervert it and take you out of the presence of God because he is a holy God and unholy things cannot be in his presence and live. And so sin actually takes your eternal nature and perverts it and causes you to experience it in a way that God never intended, which is separated from him. One of the great lies of man is that you can either choose to have an eternity with God or you can just cash in all the chips and fade into nothingness. You will live for eternity. The question is, will it be an eternity in the presence of God, loving him and knowing his love in return, or will it be an eternity separated from him, living with shame and guilt and anger and regret and selfishness and terror and fear and anguish? That is the great question of the gospel. And so we see God in Genesis 3, and he steps into action. As soon as verse 21, what is he doing? He's actually making garments to cover the shame and the brokenness of humanity. Right away, we see God getting to work with the redemption of creation. By the way, the band can come on back up. And here's the thing we have to realize, is that despite humanity's rebellion, God is still king. We rebelled, but in our rebellion, we did not unseat God from his throne. All right? We live in a day and an age where people say, hashtag not my president. You can't say hashtag not my creator of the universe. Because the air that you breathe, it is given to you by him. 
Because the way that your bones and your marrow and your heart and your brain and your muscles and your sinew and your tendons and your ligaments, the way that every single part of you works in great symphony and synchronicity without you even thinking about it for a single moment, you may have given your allegiance to another, but it does not unseat God in his designed order for this world from continuing on. And so God... We have rebelled against him, but he is still king. And what does he do? In the same way that service members have made the sacred oath one to another that no man will ever be left behind. And when, when an airman is lost behind enemy lines, every available resource in that battle space is brought to bear to bring that aviator home. In the exact same way, God looked at the entirety of his creation and said, no son and no daughter will be left behind. And from that moment forward, God shifts the entirety of his mission, the entirety of his focus to taking a creation that was intended to live for an eternity with him in Eden in relationship, ruling and reigning, absent of death, absent of sickness, absent of sin, absent of shame. He says, I will bring them home. Step one. He makes clothes for Adam and Eve. Step two, he begins to build the family. Step three, he calls this man named Abraham out of a random city and says, I will make you a father of many nations. Step four, that man and his promise becomes a people. Those people are a nation called Israel. They're a light to the nations. They are a signpost that there is a God in heaven who has a plan that cannot be built with human hands, but it is a work that comes only from his mouth. And there's a prophecy that there is a son who is coming and that if you call upon his name, you will be saved and know a life that is truly life. And then we see this moment where this man enters into the pages of history, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And no one gets to the Father but through me. He's speaking in John 3, 16 when he says, for God so loved the world. God is motivated by love, not judgment. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Did you catch it? There it is. Every available resource, even the royalty of heaven. Can you imagine a kingdom that would say we need to rescue a soldier, send the president to take his place? Would that ever happen? Would a nation ever let its king go and take the place of a mere nameless service member? It has never been done. There's half-hearted efforts at negotiation. There's the sending of someone else's son or daughter. But no president has ever gone in the stead of that one who's lost behind enemy lines. And that is precisely what God does. God says, don't send another son. Don't send another daughter. Send me. I will go. God the Father, I've got this. I was born for this. I was made for this moment. Send me what they couldn't do on their own. God, I can do it. And God looks his son in the eye and says, go. And so Jesus comes and he says, whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. That word eternal life 
in the Greek, it actually is better translated like this. Unending real life. That means that Jesus came to give you a life that is really life. And all of our understanding about eternity, heaven, and hell required that we started with all of this. So before we could go forward this week, we had to first take a step back and look into what has happened before us. And so for all of humanity, the question of greatest consequence is this. What will I make of this great gift called eternity? Will I yield my heart to the one who can mend it and make it what it was originally meant to be? Or will I try to do it in my own strength? Will I try to do it in my own power? See, today, if you're in this place, you were made with eternity in your heart. And the most powerful decision you could ever make is will you allow Jesus to come in and to give you life that is truly life? And I want to speak to all the people in here this morning who you've heard about Jesus, but you've never said, Jesus, you can have all of me. I want to speak to the people here today that you're still stuck at that place of there's got to be more to life than this. I want to talk to the people in here that at one time you were walking closely with Jesus, but if you're honest now, you're following them at a distance. You're following them part-time. You're following them when it's convenient. You're following them when it's easy. But when it gets hard, when it gets uncomfortable, when it includes suffering, you look to the path of least resistance. I'm talking to you right now. Maybe you're in this place and you've tried everything that you can in your own power and you feel more broken, more lost, more empty, more forgotten, more rejected than you felt when you first started. Today, I want to proclaim to you the good news, and this is it. Jesus is king. And he did not just come for anyone. He came for someone just like you. And where you are weak, he is strong. And where you have failed, he succeeded. And where you know death, he can bring life. And where you are broken, he can make all things new. And when your valley is low, he can raise it back up. And where you feel like a prideful mountain on your own, but you know on the inside it's a hollow facade, he can bring that low. And today, there is hope in the name of Jesus. And if you have been living in your own strength, and you have been living in your own power, then today you're saying, I'm done playing games. I'm done chasing my tail. I'm done going through the motions. I want life. I need healing. I need saving. I need rescue. If that is you in this place today, I want to pray with you and I want to pray for you.